Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Australia's relationship with China and the US is set to be a key issue in the decades ahead. But as global power shifts, what are the costs of continuing to align so closely with our traditional American allies and how might that influence dynamics in the Indo-Pacific region? These are some of the questions explored in the latest quarterly essay entitled Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America. It's authored by Hugh Wyatt, who is the Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies over at the Australian National University and Hugh joins us now on the line. Hi Hugh, uh, thanks for coming on at Triple R, welcome. It's my pleasure Dylan. And so if I could summarise your main argument here, it's that Australia is perhaps not honestly confronting the reality of China's rise and has somewhat neglected the significance that brings to our place in the region and, and also the nature of our relationship with the United States. I wonder if you can tease that out for us. What are the worrying signs for you that Australia isn't responding appropriately to these new emerging global state of affairs? Well, I think the key thing there, Dylan, is that we're underestimating how powerful China has become and how much more powerful it's going to become in the future. And we're continuing to hope that America will keep doing for us in the future what it's done for so long in the past, which is basically keep, keep Asia safe for us. You know, ever since, really, really ever since the European settlement in 1788, we've always relied on, you know, a great and powerful friend, first Britain, then America, to be the dominant power in Asia and make sure that nothing too bad happens. And we'd like that to go on forever, but it's not going to go on forever. China is now richer than the United States. It'll grow more. You know, the margin will increase over the years to come. Its military power is rising. And my argument is that although, of course, we find it uncomfortable because there's a lot of things about China that I think most of us wouldn't like, the fact is we're going to have to live with a more powerful China. We can't rely on America to save us from that. And so we're going to have to think more carefully about how we work with China, how we work with other countries in the region, uh, and also make sure that we don't find ourselves accidentally sliding into a war with China, which is, I think, quite a serious risk, which, if it occurred, I think would be catastrophic and ultimately unsuccessful as well. um, Hugh, the current Australian government was elected just five weeks ago. Your essay must have been in process before that. Did, Did the change of government in any way change the essay or your perspective of... Australia's future relations with China and and the US? Look, not that much because uh, actually, as I say in the essay, one of the peculiar things about our present situation is that we face this enormous challenge. You could say one of the biggest diplomatic foreign policy challenges Australia's ever faced. Um, But we don't really have a national debate about it because both sides of Parliament agree. Both sides, both the both uh, the Liberals and 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 their coalition partners, the Nationals and Labor all seem to agree that what we need to do is to rely on America to solve our China problem for us. And so, in a sense, it didn't make that much difference to the way the essay was uh, was framed, who was going to win the election. Fortunately, I did have the chance to to, to get to the text just uh, just for a little while after the election results so I could take account of the, of the outcome. But I think the real challenge for Labor is that it's, it's stuck to a very bipartisan approach in order to avoid being targeted by, by the conservative side of politics as weak on national security or a friend of China. And one can understand politically why they felt they needed to do that. But now they're in government. 
I think they're going to need to take a much more uh, stringent, much more uh, analytical approach to thinking what's really in Australia's best interests and sticking to the United States going to work for us in the future the way it did in the past. How significant is the, the AUKUS arrangement in your assessment that we're you know, essentially really going down the wrong path here in, in putting our lot in you know, so firmly with the US at, at the current point in time? Well, I think AUKUS is very significant and I think it's a big mistake and, and in two ways. I mean, on the sort of straight, which I might call military capability level, I think it's a mistake because I think uh, it's, a very, it's a very dumb way to buy submarines. I do think submarines are a very important part of our capability, but I think nuclear submarines don't make any sense operationally and I think the schedule to deliver them is just absurdly long. You know, we're not going to have a serious new submarine capability to replace the Collins for something, you know, something like 30 years, and that's just far too long to wait. But I also think AUKUS is a big deal and a big mistake strategically because it ties us even more closely than we have been before into America's military strategy against China. And I think the, the problem with that is that it's not going to work. I don't think America can deter China militarily because... Uh, I think China is now too strong, and I think if it came to a war, which, as I said before, I, I don't think we can rule out. I think it's a, it's a clear possibility. I think the chances of America winning that war are very low, and the chances of that war escalating to a major conventional war, but also potentially a nuclear war, are quite high. And I therefore think that for Australia, through AUKUS, to tie ourselves even more tightly into the US military strategy in Asia over the next few decades uh, is a big mistake. We need to think, focus much more on adopting an independent military and strategic posture in Asia, which I believe we can do. It's not an easy thing to do, but I think there are options there that we could, uh, we, we could look at. Uh, and Hugh, you say in the essay that the Liberals, the Liberal Party sort of fell into the position they did around China and you've you know, just said now that it's in many ways a bipartisan um, position that we're in with regards to relations with China and with the US. The other day we heard the Chinese ambassador change tone a little bit uh, and bring a message that, that seemed to be... In, you know, different, I guess, from from the Chinese government to Australia. I, I mean, are you getting a sense that things might be shifting at all? Look, I think uh, I think the, the Chinese ambassador's uh, that's Zhao's uh, speech the other day w was significant because it does reflect a change of tone uh, coming out of Beijing, and we also saw that uh, with a few earlier things when he first arrived back before the election, he made some conciliatory remarks which the previous government sort of brushed aside um, and we've seen a few other gestures so I think it's clear in Beijing that they do see an opportunity with the new government to, to change the tone of the relationship but I think we should, we should not mistake that for a change in the fundamentals. I mean right at the heart of it, the, our problem with China is that China wants to become the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, it wants to take America's place uh, uh, America wants to stop them doing that and Australia strongly supports America in doing that. That's a really fundamental uh, d divide and so I think whilst uh, it's good to see that change in tone, I think we shouldn't for a moment imagine that our problems with China have gone away. And I mean this this essay comes and, and this conversation comes of course in the context of the, the crisis in, in Ukraine and, and there's been a lot of discussion about what this might mean for a future sort of military intervention in Taiwan 
Taiwan. And, you know, President Biden has talked quite hawkishly about the prospect of, you know, engaging militarily with China in such a situation, but he seems to sort of have to walk that back um, subsequently. Uh, how significantly, in your view, does the situation in Ukraine sort of raise the stakes about the prospect of, of conflict with China going forward? Because it is a really scary thought, and it's an important one to consider, but the idea of nuclear war with China would be, you know, disastrous, not just for, for the US and China, but for, you know, many, many people all around the world. Yeah, look, it's a really important point, and there's, there's lots of different angles to it. I mean, the first point to note is that, in a sense, what's happening in Ukraine with Russia is kind of parallel to what's happening in uh, in Asia with China, that in both uh, both uh, continents, if you like, uh, a, 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 a great power, Russia in, in, in Europe and China in Asia, is trying to assert itself against what you might call the dominant United States-led order. And and so there's a you know there's a sort of a parallel there, and I think what, one of the things Ukraine teaches us is that when that situation arises, countries do go to war. I mean, everyone's been a bit shocked by the fact that Russia's behaved the way it has, but really, Russia is just behaving the way great powers have always behaved for the last. Uh, 30 years since the end of the Cold War, we've had a kind of a holiday from that, but that holiday is over and we're back to reality. The second thing we note, though, is that, um, you know, we're all very strongly supporting Ukraine, and we should, but we're also all very reluctant to go to war with Russia, and we should be. Um, you know, war with Russia, would be, with direct war between NATO or Western powers or the United States with Russia would be extraordinarily dangerous. And I think that illustrates the same kind of problem we have uh, over Taiwan. Everyone uh, agrees, I'm sure, that it would be a terrible thing for China to invade Taiwan and take it over and crush its democracy. But going to war with China over Taiwan would be an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. And we do have a very face a very tough choice of, about whether it's best to support Taiwan at the risk of a potentially nuclear war or whether we just the, the, the costs of a nuclear war are so high that we have to let that one go. And I think Taiwan teaches it, raises some of the same issues that Ukraine does. My own view is that despite the sorts of things that Biden's been saying, as you mentioned, the very tough talk he's, he's, uh, he's put out there about defending Taiwan, I think in the long run America would not support Taiwan militarily precisely because the risk of the war going nuclear would be so high and I don't think an American president is willing to fight a nuclear war to defend Taiwan on the other side of the Pacific. Speaking with Hugh White, Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at ANU and also author of the new quarterly essay which is called Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America and I mean it's often suggested that you know Australia is, is a fairly small player on the world stage so might not necessarily have much sway in these relationships with major powers such as the United States and China but I mean particularly on, on the question of Taiwan and, and Australia having a really sort of independent foreign policy, I suppose, in our region. How much sway do you think we have in terms of influencing this broader uh, picture of, of power and, and, and tensions, I suppose, um, through the way that we, we speak to the US and engage with the US and, and forge our own independent path um, going forward? Look, I think it's a really important question because um, I think we often tend to underestimate our potential influence. Uh, you know, I think as one of America's closest allies on this side of the Pacific, Australia has a real capacity to influence the way America deals with, with China, the kind of approach America takes to China. America has made it very clear it really expects Australia's unconditional support, whereas as America tries to push back against China and uh, restore the US-led order. And, um, you know, it's not, my, it's not my view that, that the US should 
leave Asia completely and and leave everything to China. I think we want America to play the biggest role in Asia that it can. But I think we also need to be going to, to America, urging America to recognise that it has to live with China. It can't pretend that China's power is going away. I think we need a new model of the way America works in Asia, which recognises that China is now the most um, economically substantial country in the world, a really major military power. It's, it's, in other words, it's a country that one has to accommodate and do deals with if you want to avoid a conflict. And I think Australia should be advocating that argument in Washington instead of doing what we have been doing for the last few years, and I fear we'll continue to do under the new government, which is encourage America to think that it can simply push China back into a box and go back to the to the way things used to be when China's economy was smaller than Australia's. And that's, I think, a very dangerous thing to be doing. I think it's, it's contrary to Australia's interests for America to take that kind of approach. And I think w we, should, we should not underestimate our capacity to help uh, persuade Americans to take a, a, a more viable, a more sustainable, a more effective, a less dangerous approach to China than the one they're taking. And um, in the minutes we've got left with you, Hugh, I, I want to ask about the, the new parliament. And <clears throat> I mean, you write that for Australia, foreign and defence policy are getting serious again. And we've seen the Prime Minister, the Deputy PM, the Foreign Minister travelling a lot. Uh, we also have uh, Greens and Till Community Independence in the parliament. Uh, I mean, what what are your hopes for this this new parliament? Just just quickly. Well, a really important point. I I, I think that if the if the teals and the independents and the greens are going to fulfil the potential that they clearly have, and if I can put it this way, the, the, the trust that a lot of Australian voters have put in them to change the way politics is done in Australia, then they're going to have to start engaging in foreign and defence policy questions. Now, you know, they tend to be elected on things like like climate change and uh, and uh, government integrity and those sorts of things. Um, uh, I think there are important issues, but I don't think these are issues which uh, which the new forces in Parliament can afford to ignore. So I'm hoping that they'll become uh, important voices in our national debate about how we live in what is a very new Asia, which is going to make very different demands on us as a country. Well, really appreciate you spending some time with this this morning, Hugh. Congrats on the essay and um, all the best. Well, thanks very much. Thanks, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you both. Yeah, I'm sure we'll talk again. Thanks. Hugh White there, Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at ANU, talking all about his brand new quarterly essay, Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America, which is available now. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And it's very good timing to have Benita Kolovos back on the grapevine. Benita is Guardian Australia's Victorian State Correspondent. And Benita, we're seeing a changing of the guard in the Victorian government with not one or two, but four ministers. Um, Deputy Premier James Zolino, Health Minister Martin Foley, Police Minister Lisa Neville and Minister for Tourism, Sport and Major Events Martin Pakula, all saying they're not going to contest the next election. What is happening um, you've also got to include in there Jill Hennessy and Richard Wynne, uh -huh. who announced last year they were retiring. So combined, like all these six MPs have more than 100 years of parliament experience. They're quite senior, very well-respected um, ministers. So it's a massive loss for the government. It does make a bit of sense if you consider the fact that, you know, this is their second term uh, in government. They would have had time in opposition as well. Um, you know, some of these MPs have been in the parliament for 20 years, so 
I guess if you're talking about a good time to go, now would be it. Um, but, yeah, a couple of those came as quite a surprise, um, particularly um, James Molino, who's, you know, shot to prominence when the Premier had time off last year following his fall. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will remember him from, what was it, lockdown number four <laughs> he was he was in charge for. Um, so, yeah, um, it definitely is a changing of the guard. Um, a lot of senior people um, going with a bit of time ahead of the election for the public to get to know. Yeah, and I mean... And as you mentioned, Benita, I mean, there was a, a global pandemic, a, you know, a really heady time to be in government, I'm sure. Mm. But it, it sort of struck me as interesting that all these four resignations came, you know, all, all at once, I suppose. Did you get much of a, a heads up as, as a journalist that this was coming? Um, so we had heard some whispers about a couple, um, Lisa Neville probably being the most obvious, given she had to take six months off last year um, to recover from Crohn's disease. So she's been quite unwell. Um, so we had heard for some time um, that she was considering her future. Um, Martin Pakula's seat was abolished in the redistribution that happened last year. So he was considering a move to the upper house, but there was a couple question marks around whether he was going to actually end up doing that. So I guess those two we had an idea of. Um, James Molino was a bit of a surprise to me personally. And then right at last minute we started hearing some whispers about um, the health minister, Martin Foley, as well. So whispers, I think, started um, for the first two couple months ago, the second two, the start of the week. Um, and it was kind of a weird dance where they would all come to press conferences with us and tell us they weren't leaving and then by (laughs) Friday they were all gone. (laughs) We weren't leaving yesterday but we are leaving today. (laughs) (laughs) The Premier said it was um, to do with them, you know, getting to announce it on their own terms. Um, But yeah, it was was a fun fun week. Yeah, and and it's amazing they all came to their, on on their own terms, all at the same time. Um, Yeah. But but it's been been spruced as a renewal I mean, uh, and as you say, the burnout, the pandemic is the main reason that that some gave for for leaving at this point and we're seeing other MPs elevated. Uh, I mean, what's your sense about how how this might work for the the election for the Labor Party in Victoria to have this sort of renewal, new faces coming into prominence? So um, I wrote a piece um, for Saturday that kind of looked at this, particularly um, comparisons between Andrew's government and Jeff Kennett, who um, at the 1999 election, he lost six of his most senior ministers, um, and then he went on to suffer an election loss. Um, Key difference is he didn't announce replacements for them. He didn't allow them to, you know, debate their opposition. Um, He did all the media during that election campaign and made it really like a referendum on himself. Um, which he ended up losing. Um, whereas, you know, we've got five months before the election. This time round, Andrews, you know, I think part of the reason they were all announced at the same time, it was behind the scenes quite a careful, considered operation um, from the Premier to, you know, put people into these positions. Quite quite young, a um, couple of these ministers that are coming in um, from diverse backgrounds, um, the cabinet's now going to be more than 50% women. You've got the deputy in Jacinta Allen, who's, you know, a combo of, um, I guess, 
having a lot of experience, but a lot of people um, will get the opportunity now to get to know her better. Um, so I think the comparisons between Kenneth losing his six ministers and Andrew losing his, I, I don't think it'll have as much of an effect. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and a lot's been made of Jacinta Allen as Deputy Premier, someone with a lot of parliamentary experience. She was mm. first elected in 1999, aged just 25, so maybe someone that, you know, the public might not so not know so well as some of those ministers who have just resigned, but someone with a whole lot of experience and was Daniel Andrews' preferred choice as deputy. There's been some discussions about how significant this is for Labor's factions. What's your sense mm. of that, that that she has been elevated, being from the same socialist left faction as Daniel Andrews? So, yeah, the factions in Vic Labor um, is quite fun, and I reckon you need a PhD to really, <laughs> truly understand how it all works. Um, but basically, yes, she um, is from his socialist left faction. Um, he put her up as his um, preferred pick for deputy, um, and then at that press conference, the most senior member of the right faction of the party, the treasurer, Tim Pallas, also said, you know, let's all get behind um, JA, as they all call her. Um, I guess, you know, it does make sense in the sense that the Premier wanted a woman in this position. He wanted someone with experience in this position and... Um, when you looked at kind of the right ranks, I don't think there was any, you know, well-respected senior woman ready to take on that position there. I think they were floating Ben Carroll, the Transport Minister, as um, a possible deputy. So from that point of view, I think it makes sense. I think, like the Premier said, most people in the public don't know or care what faction people are from, but it kind of just shows the influence and power that the Premier has over the party at the moment. Um, he says it's happened before, but, um, yeah, it's quite extraordinary to have deputy and a leader from the same faction, I guess, when you're looking at the politics of Italy. Yeah, absolutely. And and what about that in, in light of Andrews seeking Labor's national executive to maintain control over the Victorian branch mm. until after the election to sort of, you know, manage pre-selections and that sort of thing? I mean, to you, does that signal just that, I suppose, at the level of, of power that he has in Victorian Labor and maybe, you know, some trepidation about these factional wars, um, you know, getting off the ground, I suppose, if, if there wasn't that continued control of, of Labor's national executive over, over the state branch? I think so. I also think it shows um, how fractured the right of the party is. Mm. Now, the whole reason that he had to get the federal party in to take over the Vic Labor branch was because of allegations of branch sacking yeah. against the right factional leader, Adam Sumurek. Um So following his exit from the party... Um, some members of the right faction signed a stability pact at the left. Um, it meant some factions were left um, with, you know, diminished power. Um, so, I, I don't know, I think it's a, a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Obviously, um, we've, you know, all heard about, you know, the Premier and how, you know, influential he is within the party, how um, his office has you know, quite a firm grip on how things go, who does media when, um, you know, that sort of thing, when the policy is going to be announced, etc. Um, so it just, I guess that makes sense that it will translate to, you know, these factional matters as well. But, you know, we wouldn't 
in position if we, you know, didn't see what was happening within the right. Like, you couldn't have let that go. Mm. You couldn't leave what was happening, those allegations that were made in the 60 minutes, and, um, you know, the age expose. Um, you know, you, you're forced to act in that situation, I guess, for the Premier. He's going to, you know, utilise that politically when he can. Yeah, so, I mean, what... what what do you know of the, the five new members of the Victorian Cabinet? Um, we've, you know, the names, I can read the names. Uh, Marianne Thomas is going to take health. Um, Sonia Kilkenny, Youth Justice. Uh, Lizzie Blanthorne, Planning. Steve Dimopoulos, uh, Sports. Um, Harriet Shing, Water and Regional Development. going to the former well, the speaker, Colin Brooks. And um, have I got that right? No, Harriet Shing, Water. I shouldn't do this job. It's your job. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there's a bunch of people there coming. In um, what do you what do we know about them and and I, I guess we will get a chance over the next five months I assume to uh, work out who's who in in the cabinet. Yeah, so um, Harriet Ching, I kind of got to know her a little bit better during the um, gate conversion, um, you know, legislation that banned um, gay conversion practices, which you know um, she's the Victorian Parliament's first openly um, lesbian MP and she did an amazing, like, really powerful speech about how harmful those practices are um, at that time. Um, so she's kind of been slowly rising to prominence within the left of the party um, for some time. She tried to get into Cabinet last time round and was unsuccessful. Um, she obviously comes from regional Victoria, so it makes sense that she'll be... Um, in those portfolios as well as for equality. Um, Mark Foley held that um, equality portfolio for quite some time, so it's, it's great to see her in that role, and I think she'll do well in it. Um, Steve Demopoulos is the member for Oakley. Um, you know, Greek, Greek man like myself. <laughs> um, he's going to be taking on all the fun portfolios, so tourism, sports, major events, creative industries. Um, so... Yeah, what's that called? The Minister for Good Times. Um, He's, you know, another young, um, newer member entering Cabinet, same with um, Sonia Kilkenny and Lizzie Blanthorne. Um, And then we've got, obviously, the Speaker, Colin Brooks, um, who'll become the Minister for Child Protection, Family Services, Disability, Ageing and Carers. Um, There's been a lot... um, said about the state of child protection in Victoria at the moment. So that's a really challenging portfolio that there will be a lot of work for him to do in and he's kind of one of the more experienced people entering Cabinet. So that makes sense that he be taking on that portfolio. Um, so I guess what that does is, you know, brings in some fresh faces, brings in um, you know, quite a few more women. So now there's going to be 14 women in cabinet, which is more than any other Australian jurisdiction, um, and then the parliamentary leadership position. So Lizzie will be taking on, um, you know, leader of the house for the government. Um, so with her and then the deputy and leader in the upper house, women, and you know, just in Allen, what's that? Five parliamentary leadership positions of six being filled by women. Um, so that's quite significant. Um, and then I think some little interesting bits, if I have time to add them. Yeah. Um, Anthony Carbines will be taking on the police portfolio. 
Um, he's, he was relatively new to Cabinet, so that's quite a big promo for him. Same with um, Marianne Thomas in Health. She was most recently Agriculture and Regional Development Minister. Um, like I, I reckon they're quite significant portfolios for relatively newer members of Cabinet. Um, police, obviously... There's a lot going on in that space and in terms of, you know, the competing interests there, it'll be interesting to see how Anthony Carline goes. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, it's felt like quite a, a busy time for the Victorian government and, and parliament lately. There was the big joint announcement from the Andrews and Perrottet governments over the early childhood package. There were those, you know, really powerful presentations around the, the Victorian Treaty Authority being established. We've had, um, you know, some debate around the proposed uh, protest uh, laws in Victoria as well that's, that's, you know, caused some concern among environmentalists and so on. But given that there have been these new new appointments made. Do you have much of a sense of what might be the priorities in the months ahead as we move towards the state election in November? Yeah, they've brought in some quite interesting legislation in the last couple um, sitting weeks. It was quite quiet at the start of the year, so interesting that they're starting to, you know, get a little bit busier as we head to, I think, September is our last sitting week, so not that many weeks to go to pass anything they want to get done before the election. Um, I, I think there's one other thing that's worth adding as well that we've been told for some time that the Vic government was going to bring in some legislation for um, victims' rights, um, a complete overhaul of our, um, I guess, sexual offences and um, legislation around stealthing, around consent, affirmative consent model. That's all meant to be coming before the parliament as well in the next couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, some big, big changes they want to get done. And obviously, treaty was one that they wanted to see through, you know, in the event that you lose an election to make sure that you've got bipartisan support for something as pivotal as um, that piece of legislation, which will establish, you know, an independent umpire to oversee treaty between the Victorian government and its First Nations people. It's quite a big thing. And it was, you know, Unfortunately, given everything that went on with the Cabinet at the end of last week, we kind of missed how important um, that piece of legislation passing the lower house is. Yeah, look, I mean, it just looked amazing, the images of it that I saw and and some of the, um, you know, the speeches made, things like that, amazing. Mm. Benita, thank you. Come back again soon. It's been great. Um, <laughs> it's been great talking. Thanks heaps. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too, Benita Colovas there, uh, Guardian Australia's Victorian State Correspondent. A lot to correspond on. Uh, there's heaps happening here in Victoria when, when it comes to what's happening down at Parliament House on Spring Street. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.